the episode title is going to be Satisfying Meat. Uh, and this makes me extraordinarily happy. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to the very 94th episode of Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom. This episode is coming to you on the 12th of October 2023. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And today we are going to discuss what we voted for in the best novel category in the Hugos. And when we say what we voted for, I haven't decided what to vote for yet. I will decide what to vote for following this discussion, because you may demonstrate to me that novels I have hidden depths that I had not previously noticed. We're going to kick off at the start. Uh, So we're going to read down the best novel category with one exception. So we're going to start with The Daughter of Dr. Moreau by Silvia Moreno-Garcia, which was published by Del Rey. So this is a book about a house in the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico and it's kind of in conversation with a book by H.G. Wells which is called The Island of Dr. Moreau. It kind of focuses on the daughter of Dr. Moreau, the titular daughter of Dr. Moreau and one of the people who work in the house uh, for the doctor. So yeah, Carlotta and Montgomery. And that is kind of a a, a potted summary of the book. What do we think? First off, are we going to do spoilers? No spoilers? Oh, we're definitely doing spoilers. Second, I think that was a good job, but I don't think you actually basically said anything about what is in the book. So we might want to see if we can do like very pithy 30 second intros to the other ones. Okay. What did I miss out? Well, just because you didn't mention anything about it being the hybrid man-animal people. Just keep it. Yeah, so critically, Dr. Moreau is uplifting animals to pick a term from David Brim, but he was doing it in his in the Wells novel as well. It's patching in some of the things that are just left in the Wells as as you didn't need to explain this sort of stuff when you were writing an adventure novel in the um eighteen nineties, but maybe you do need to do that now. Um so things like where the money is coming from and and the money is coming from somebody who believes that um uplifted animals might be a good labour force. So obviously you're then getting into some very interesting um ideas about um slavery and colonialism and my general critical chisel, which is how is the work getting done. And this book kind of sets some of this stuff up and then really doesn't answer it as much as I would expect. And it's not a particularly long book and it quite spends quite a lot of the book engaged in the daughter's love triangle, which I have to say is one of the most boring love triangles I have ever read in all of my time reading fiction, because there are two men here and they're both terrible. Um, so, you know, um, but the big problem I have with this book is that if you are familiar with Wells and familiar about it, then there is a major reveal about 80% of the way through the book. And if you're remotely familiar with the Wells, then reading the title might tell you what that reveal is. So this is a problem. Yeah, I, I will say when you decided to read the Wells, I thought you were making a mistake. And um, I did wonder whether that would come up in our discussion. Yeah, I think you should have read the Wells four years ago. That would be a good time to have read it, or when you were a child, something like that. I don't think you're supposed to not work the twist out, I will say. I think it's like not clear to the character, and I think it's believably done that the character 
that is not clear to the character but I, I don't i don't think you're supposed to be like absolutely astounded by the reveal um i really liked this i liked the character work i think the way i described the book at the beginning really neatly encapsulates the bits i found interesting about it like the hybrids are kind of you know they're interesting but like the it is not the plot that appealed to me about this one there's like their commentaries on kind of colonialism capitalism and the way it it blends all that together with stuff about mexico which i was kind of like unaware of it it, it feels like exactly the sort of novel i think the hugos are very good at recognizing in their late stage where it's someone from a different background exploring the genre from a different set of eyes and having different takes on what's going on and i i liked it for that yeah i think the setting is really interesting and and it's very complex in how it it interrogates it so it's not kind of a setting where you know oh the europeans bad you know the indigenous people's good there are different aspects to it because there are kind of you know the indigenous mayan people but also you know other people from other areas of uh, like south america and also you know one of the lead characters is a british guy who's basically outrunning his past or trying to by being in mexico and around there but it's not really... It's kind of a more interesting than just, oh, this guy is a colonialist, but obviously he has some kind of privileges and power based on who he is, but also not because he's heavily indebted to other people. So I thought that was interesting. The love triangle is maybe a little bit... It's not the most interesting bit, but I kind of liked Carlotta, the daughter, because she's not quite been raised in solitude and completely taken in by the you know shiny young man who appears and she's not unaware of kind of the wider issues but is still someone who's trying to figure out like what would be best for her and still can get kind of seduced and taken in so I thought it was a bit more complicated than maybe your average love triangle between a young woman and the two men who are interested in her plus she does kind of at the end is not really with either of them she is off making her own way yeah, I, d- I did like that as the ending of the situation. Carlotta has two hybrid companions who are hybrids who who are kind of not quite perfect hybrids, but they are very interesting characters. And I thought they were very well drawn and they and better drawn than any of Wells's hybrid characters. And the other, I thought this, because it's not just, it's in dialogue with the Wells, obviously, but it also has quite a lot to say about, it's quite like The Tempest with the um, magician and his, his daughter and the, their spirits on an island. And it's, it's also quite like Blade Runner with a madman who is building a working class and who has a beautiful daughter. Um, and I thought those were also two very interesting influences. This is one of the most interesting novels on the ballot. It may be the most interesting novel on the ballot. Um, I just don't think it worked very well. I think that's a, I really liked a lot of things about it, but I feel like it didn't all pull together to leave me feeling, oh, yes, I have read a very satisfying science fiction novel at the end of it. I, I, I read it first as well, and I think I probably have liked it more if I'd read it last after some of these other novels, because I think I might have been grading on the wrong curve. <laughs> Yeah, it feels like it has lots of interesting components to it that don't quite make a 100% satisfying novel. Also, I've read a couple of reviews of this that say, oh, this one's got onto the ballot, but in fact, Morena Garcia has written better books and she's been kind of bubbling under on the Hugo ballot for a few years. So so it's definitely worth... I haven't read anything else by her and I'm definitely going to go away and do that now because I thought this was very interesting. She's been on my radar for a while, so I want to read Mexican Gothic, but the one I'm particularly interested in is she wrote the Daughters of Cthulhu, or she edited the the Daughters of Cthulhu anthology, which um, obviously is in my wheelhouse. 
so i you know i I think i agree i don't think this comes together quite as well as i think it might have done but um but i did there were i thought there was a lot to like in it and then next up is the kaiju preservation society by john scalzi published by tor books this is a book in which a delivery driver makes friends with someone because he makes deliveries to him and it turns out that person works for an organization that because of nuclear power plants thinning the boundaries between worlds works for an ecological preservation society dedicated to kaiju on a parallel earth hijinks ensue kaiju are japanese movie monsters um, which you probably need to know before you read this novel because if you don't they never really describe the kaiju at all in more than the most basic forms. So <laughs> so you have to make them in your mind. I feel like kaiju is a term of art similar to zombies, where like you don't have to go into massive detail on zombies either because everyone knows what a zombie is. Do we think that's wrong? I think more people know what a zombie is than know what a kaiju is. But two things are left undescribed in this novel, and I think it's quite deliberate. The first is the main character, and the second is the kaiju. And I think that's that's one of the things that is interesting about the novel, kind of as a structural thing. Scalzi has been fascinated by main characters that go undescribed. Like, um, was it Lock-In, where the main character's gender is unspecified? Yeah, the main character's gender is unspecified here as well. Which I didn't know until I finished reading the book. I, I read this main character as male. Other people read this main character as female. People have opinions loudly on the internet. Hey. I mean, I noted it because there's a few points where I noticed that everyone was referring to Jamie as Jamie, where you would naturally throw in a pronoun. But only only a couple of times did I realise that was happening. So I think it is quite well done. But it is also a testament to the characters in this novel who are all interchangeable millennial nerds and gender is basically unimportant because everything is unimportant except that they're fun millennial nerds okay so this novel is largely the story is largely told through the medium of bants which is fine but it does get a little bit wearing but I mean, I enjoyed, I read this very quickly. I enjoyed it a whole lot. It doesn't do a huge amount, you know. It's, it's, so in the way that the Moreno Garcia is an extremely ambitious novel that doesn't quite pull it off, this is an extremely unambitious novel that does it perfectly well. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think like, and the afterword makes it clear that, that this is indeed explicitly the case because Scalzi was trying to write an ambitious novel in the pandemic and eventually burned out. And then this was the novel that he wrote uh, instead. He's like, it's a lovely light thing that will distract you from the terror of your normal life. And then you can read this and then you can just enjoy it and then get on with your life. And I'm very, that's fine. We need books like that. But we don't necessarily need them to put them, put them on our awards shortlist, people. What's wrong with you lot? Sorry. <laughs> anyway. I think I wanted to pick up on something that Liz said, which is that all of these people are millennial nerds. Um, this is true. But um, <clears throat> one of the things that me and Espana were discussing when we were both reading it, was that it's not just that they're all millennial nerds they're all incredibly like sarcastic and quippy millennial nerds and i said to her i wish there was one line of dialogue in this novel that didn't get appended with the word dryly i would quite like some wet dialogue please just one earnest person who doesn't get any jokes would be great because like in real life there are earnest people who don't get my joke because this world feels very superficial because it is entirely people who feel like they would be friends with john scalzi which is great but like 
it didn't feel particularly plausible to me. The, the characterizations really tore me out of the book a couple of times. One of the nice things usually if you have characters who are sarcastic, quippy nerds is there's usually a moment where they stop being sarcastic, quippy nerds. Like there's a moment of sincerity or otherwise that kind of then contrasts with it. And it didn't feel like we had that very much. I would say I did find this novel quite funny, which given that there are two novels on here which particularly sell themselves as being funny, um, I I thought it was interesting that this novel I found funnier than either of those two novels by quite a long way because they're sarcastic, quippy nerves and they do that stuff. And I quite like that stuff because I like those sorts of people. So, you know, I really enjoyed it. I mean, if you have like a couple of hours to sit sit and read a funny novel and amuse yourself then yeah this is this is for you it's a very short novel quite a lot of short novels on this ballot this year it's 270 pages long how long 270 pages that's short compared to bloody nona yeah but i don't think it's a short book i'm also not convinced that helicopters can do some of the things they do in this book and i mean there is in fact a line where you know the helicopter does a thing and then another thing which is fine if because you're you know narrating this from your first person millennial perspective but it kind of covers up that I'm not sure that it would actually work but I mean that's not really the point of this novel is it I I'm I'm I'm, I'm not generally reading science fiction novels to to nitpick the helicopter science either yeah no but I think if you're doing kind of a sort of fun adventure novel I shouldn't be imagining like this helicopter bouncing about like Roger Rabbit or something have you seen the movie Mission Impossible Fallout, in which Tom Cruise survives not one, not two, but three crashes of the same helicopter in sequence? <laughs> I have not seen that. Does he survive it by driving his motorbike out of any of them? I mean, I enjoyed it. I will say, coming back to the comedy thing, um, I find Scousy funniest when he's not explicitly writing comedy. So like Red Shirts, I found, was one of his least funny books, but I really laugh out loud at the Old Man's War series. And this was kind of in the middle where it is clearly, like I say, I, I think he is at his funniest when he is not trying to be lighthearted in a way. Yeah, I, I mean, there are plenty of funny lines in this book. And I will just come to Alison's defence. So this book is 80,000 words, which I do think is on the short side. It is, I think, because most, I, I sort of imagine a standard novel to be 100 and then anything below 90 i think of is quite short three of the books on the short list came up as about 220 pages on my kobo so roughly the same length and i think of those as short novels yeah and then the morena gossier is a bit longer and known as a lot longer and the spare man is a lot yeah i mean the advantage of the internet is that you can get you can get facts yeah so um daughter of dr moreau is bang on a hundred thousand so i think that is normal novel spare man is 108 so i would again say that's normal novel nona is 170 which i would say safely is long novel kaiju is short novel nettle and bone is 82 yep so short novel and then the other one which is legends and lattes that's the one which i assume is short because it had a short story in it and uh, that usually means that they didn't quite make word count yeah 60k so that is very short on the topic of Legends and Lattes, shall we discuss Legends and Lattes? So, I'm a small business owner. 
I'm really up for a novel about somebody um, setting up a small business and the trials and tribulations of doing so before you eventually get success. This doesn't have any of the tribulations and trials really apart from one kind of massive one. But in general, everyone in this book is nice. Every supporting character lives their life with no purpose other than to make the main character's life better, which is a kind of weird way for a novel to be. And um, oh, God. And I was a huge fan of Travis Baldry before I started reading this novel. So, you know. Oh, yes. And it has a fantasy setting, but it's not. It's about a woman setting up a coffee shop. Could be in Seattle. Could be anywhere. Has no fantasy content. It couldn't be in Seattle. It does have fantasy content. No one's heard of coffee. Clearly ludicrous. Okay. London in 2001. You know. I... It could it, it could be science fiction. There might be less organised crime in Seattle. I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Seattle fans, right in. So, so this is a world in which there is no organised government, but there is organised crime. I saw a review of this book that said, like Terry Pratchett without the jokes, and that is completely fair, um, without the jokes or political commentary. Yeah, I don't think it's trying at all to be Terry Pratchett. So like, um, Yeah, but it's set in Ankh-Morpork. I don't think it is. I don't think it's trying to be set in Ankh-Morpork. It is trying to be a coffee shop AU extended to a novel. I thought it did that brilliantly. Uh, I am not convinced it needs to win a Hugo Award for doing that. But like as a cosy book that I read in an afternoon and made me feel vaguely fuzzy, I thought it smashed it out of the park. And that is, I think, why people read coffee shop AUs as well. So like, I think it does everything the author wanted it to do. And I think the reason it is very popular. What's a coffee shop AU? Liz, do you want to explain what a coffee shop AU is? Yes. So, Alison, there is a genre of fan fiction in which you take your favourite characters from a TV show or movie or video game and basically recast them so they're all in a coffee shop and they're all baristas or maybe the handsome delivery guy. So, like Friends? No, because in Friends they don't actually do any coffee making. Like, I don't know, I haven't actually read any of these things because generally the reason I'm watching a TV show or movie is not because I want to recast the characters in a coffee shop. But I understand this is a thing. It's perfectly fair. This is this is a self-published piece of fan fiction that got picked up by a publisher. But So that is what it is. That is perfectly fine. I don't think Baldry ever really expected to end up where he's got with this. But I will say, so I think the reason it has done, the the reason I think it has done very well this year is because it is a cosy book about a queer person doing a thing with not many uh, obstacles. I think a lot of people needed that in the political and uh, health climate of 2022 and 2023. So I do understand why it's popular. Yeah, yeah, but Bill, Mills and Boone exists. I mean... I... Like, I'm not saying that this is the world's best science fiction, because uh, I do not think it is. I don't think it's terrible, though, because I think it does exactly what it wants to do extremely well. I think that is laudable in its own way. I do not think the author was trying to do anything other than exactly what he did. I mean, but it does set up some things, right? So it does set up that there is organised crime and they are coming round to, you know, get payments from the business owner for safety and security. And the way this is resolved is... She goes and chats ahead of crime and they agree she can have some cinnamon buns. Cake. You read this as organised crime, but it's actually the government. It's taxes. It's somebody coming to you in, in order to get payment for public services. Although generally, if I don't pay my taxes, I don't think they're quite as menacing people with swords who come round. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. But, you know, 
This is set up as like a major obstacle. You've clearly never had the BBC licence fee people come over, Liz. Terrifying. (laughs) But it's set up as a major obstacle and it becomes not an obstacle at all because they give her some cinnamon buns, which they have invented. Why even bother setting it up as an obstacle if you're just going to dismiss it in five seconds and then the lady is now your best friend? Because the point of this book is for every obstacle you face to be something that can be easily overcome with application of either cake or friends. Because again, it's trying to be a cosy AU coffee shop story. (laughs) Like, I think all of the things you are describing as bugs are features, which is to say I am going to put this fifth on my ballot or probably fifth or sixth. I haven't decided whether I like it more or less than the Kaiju book. But I think criticising it for things that it is nailing as what it is trying to do is, I just think it misses the point a bit. Well, I think it's worthy of recognition. If there was an award for Best Coffee Shop AU, we'd be right up there, right? Yes, it would win. It would get, if there was a Hugo Award for Best Cozy Book, this would smash it. Or Coziest Book. This is very cosy book. Coziest book. Imagine I read, you know, if I want something that's cosy, I might go and read like a romance novel because then I kind of know we're going from A to B and it's where the twists are along the way. But even then, like, it doesn't necessarily have to be that, you know, You, but I think you have to have like some way of resolving this like maybe we should resolve this by you know a non-traditional way i'm not saying she should be paying the protection money slash taxes but you know if there was at least some like small obstacle that she had to talk her way through or that was resolved by you know talking to her friends about it but it is literally just seems to resolve by going along to this meeting and then it's all sorted right like i don't believe in the romance if this romance doesn't have any obstacles to it to be fair, they explain later that the, the the cinnamon buns in return for protection thing is because, and this is one of the ways that you know that the madrigal is actually about government, not crime, is she is drentrifying the area and the madrigal likes that. That's explicitly said in the book. It, it, it's not, you know, so I talk a lot about critical chisels. This book doesn't really... You can't really use a critical feather on it because as soon as you start thinking about anything in the novel, it all falls apart like a, like a, like a particularly frothy cake that you might get in a coffee shop. I want, I want to say, I, do, I don't, don't think I've said this loudly or maybe at all. I completely agree with everything Liz and Alison have said about this novel. I just think that that is the point. <laughs> like every single criticism I think is an entirely valid thing that is wrong with this book. I have to give my Travis Baldry shout out here, which is that the reason I knew of Travis Baldry was that he took a genre of video game, which is where is dungeon crawling, where you go and fight horrible monsters. And he made the cutest game ever made in that in that genre where you are adorable. Your pet is adorable. Most of the things you meet are adorable. Nothing bad ever happens to you. And so I feel like the man has form here. I do agree, like, it is not going to be anywhere near the top of my ballot. And hopefully, hopefully, I mean, I, 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 if, if this wins the Hugo, then I don't know. I don't know what I'll do. I'll, I'll, nothing, probably. I'll just rant about it on my podcast. That's why I have a podcast. Isn't that right, guys? So anyway, yeah, I think we're agreed. We disagree on exactly why we're all putting it towards the bottom of our ballot. But I think, <laughs> I don't think any of us are putting this at the top. Is that fair? I mean, yeah, but I just... I don't want to think that this is like cosy fantasy has to mean that you can just like make up plot hurdles and then forget them again. 
I would also like to point out that if this is supposed to be like, oh, the real the real treasure was the friends we made along the way, they're all your employees. Well, okay, so hope they unionize. <laughs> I want to read the sequel to this, which is the union. <laughs> She makes them partners, but they're not really even employees. They're aspects of her. Because the thing about books about found families and the books where you, um, even employees, books where you kind of work with people to achieve a goal. And as I said, I quite like that genre. One of the reasons why, like one of the reasons about a podcast is good is because we don't agree all the time. I disagree. We don't automatically do things to because they'll make John happy, right? That. No, I mean that. That I fully agree with. You know, it's it, it's it's not. That's because the, the, when you have a joint enterprise and you bring something really good together from the joint enterprise, it's because you have different opinions and you work through those different opinions to build the thing that is worthwhile. And there's very little of that in this book. That's the thing that really makes it fail for me. Is that if she was telling that sort of story, if he was telling that sort of story, which I do really like. There's not a disagreement. It's just, you know, everyone just loves you. Everyone just loves her. It's just, you know, it's just being surrounded by people who adore what she's doing. I'm running out of ways to say I completely agree with your criticism, but I don't think it's what he's trying to do. But yes, agreed. I would not have read this book if it wasn't on the Hugo ballot. And I would not read other things by this um, author, probably. I might if I was in like a really bad mood and I just wanted something to turn the pages. But that's why I have Star Wars tie-in novels, which achieve a very similar thing for me. <laughs> This and Kaiju Preservation Society, both of the, neither of them is going to trouble you very much. They both get read in the after, in You read them in a coffee shop in an afternoon with a coffee and a cinnamon bun. Mm. Oh, yeah, I will say one very concrete boon of this book, which might elevate it to fifth on my ballot, is that when Hispania made it, she did get back onto her cinnamon roll baking kick. And that was a concrete win in this house. So thank you to Travis Baldry, because I got a lot of cinnamon buns. Mm -mm. Yeah, win. Fair, fair. (laughs) Uh, Right, from a book that tries to do not a lot and uh, is very clear and doesn't have many obstacles, to Nona the Ninth, which is different, different to that in many ways. So this is the third entry in the Locked Tomb series. Um, This is hard to pre-see, but it's about a little girl who likes being the class monitor at her school and then has to go on a school trip so she's an she's an she's a late teenage girl who has very few memories and so is presenting as a very young girl it's going to be tricky so okay so i've got a thought about this book which is i enjoyed gideon the ninth very much i thought it was good i thought to be fair i thought the first half was a little bit slow but the second half i like thought was great and then uh, i really actually enjoyed harrow the ninth as well uh, and I know not everyone did, but like I really liked the way it kind of takes the first book and starts 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 playing with the story of that book in a way that makes you wonder what's going on and then kind of resolves it at the end in a way where you're pretty sure you know what's going on, but you're not 100%. And I was looking forward to the third volume uh, because I thought it would confirm what had happened in the second volume. And instead what it does is it gets way more confusing. And for me... I'm keen to read the fourth volume still because I do still want to know what's going on. But I do think there is merit to actually explaining what's going on. I wish this book had done more to resolve 
what was actually going on in Harrow because at the moment I'm like the starting point of someone reading this book is going to be very divergent based on exactly how they interpreted the events of Harrow and then this book is going to make that diverge even more and so I don't think many fans in this series will be on quite the same wavelength as to what is actually going on and I think that I found frustrating in a way that I didn't for Harrow so this is my least favorite of the three so far. So I would say I enjoyed like the first half so all the bits about Nona, but it did feel like, and you know, I know that this book was added to make the trilogy into quadrilogy, presumably when the last volume got too big, but it does feel like she got really interested in Nona and wanted to do more about Nona. And then at some point it was like, oh, but I have to now fit this back into the rest of the story. Let's go back into the kind of necromancery, necrolord shenanigan side of things. Um, and I think it's a little it doesn't quite fit together and I wonder if I would have just preferred like the bits that are known as a completely separate book but maybe I need that kind of tension about who Nona actually is to make it work I did enjoy it I had to go back and look up who half the characters were at the start even though I had literally read Harrow the Ninth the week before it does not even the tiniest bit of hand-holding. It's like, do you remember that character who was actually two characters in one and, like, in the last ten pages they changed their name? Well, now they're a main character. I hope you remembered who they were. And it also has flashbacks, although I don't really know when the flashbacks are happening. But anyway, sort of retelling the story of the god-emperor of this world who essentially comes from our world, and I'm not sure it, that fits in. Um, or was necessary to know kind of how it came about. I'd already got the idea from Harrow that he was not a great guy to be the god emperor. But I still enjoyed it because I enjoy everything with like necromancers and ridiculous swordplay and bone magic and, you know, people being in different bodies and going into the mysterious river and living there and coming back out. And, and, and so I quite enjoyed it. But I also don't really know what happens at the end. Yes, all of what Liz said, I agree with. I have a general complaint about series, which is that I don't like books where I feel I'm reading the same book over and over again, which I often do with series, even ones that are very well thought of. Um, the Locked Tomb doesn't give me that problem, okay? <laughs> no, that is fair. <laughs> Except that structurally it does, because I feel like it's now set up for, we basically have a novel where for three quarters of the novel, you have not the faintest fucking idea what's going on, and then about fairly close to the end, there is a large info dump after which many things become clear and, and then about 80% of everything gets resolved, but not the last 20%. Hopefully she can pull it together on the fourth book, but I am now getting a little bit tired of that structure. I also think this book is far too long for the story it's telling. The stuff, the bits with Nona, whilst perfectly fine, just go on and on and on and on. And we know that, in fact, not that much of that bill is going to lead into our eventual plot. And there's also some of the stuff later in the novel. Some of the flashbacks are, are longer than they need to be. There's quite a lot that just feels flabby in this book. And when you're telling a really complicated story, deflabbing it makes it easier to tell the, the, the long and complicated story, not, not harder. So I like this one. I, I like Gideon and maybe liked Harrow even more than Gideon. And I like this one slightly less than all three of them. But my, this comes to my other big problem with this book for the best novel category, which is, guys, this isn't a novel. This isn't what a novel looks like. This is not in any way. It does not have any of the features of a novel. If you looked at it with critical theory, you would go, no, oh, no, that's not what a novel is. 
Yeah, it's a it's the third part of a four part book, and it's it should not be on the best novel category, and it's a absolute scandal that it is. I mean, obviously it satisfies because it's like fiction of more than forty thousand words, but it is just like a chunk of fiction out of the middle of a of a series. And series is why we have this best series category, and it could go there, and I could vote for it there, which I probably will do because I really like. I am curious. Like, I think it's more of a jam. It's more of a jam than a novel. Yeah, like maybe a strawberry jam. Why? It's not. It it doesn't. It, so so a novel tells a story. This doesn't tell a story. If you pick this up without having read the previous two books in the series, it would make no sense at all. This is basically me saying it's clearly a novel. Uh, it does. It does. I actually, I would actually sincerely argue that it would make almost as much sense as it does having read the previous two, because it's not like the previous two had a lot of clues. Readers, if, if any of you out there have read Nona but hadn't read the previous two because it's on the Hugo ballot, please write in with your thoughts. Does this feel like a novel to you? I mean, I think you could argue it, it tells the story of Nona, even if you don't really know what's going on with the rest of the characters, that Nona has a sort of satisfying character arc, except I don't really know what happens to her at the end. But otherwise... No, I don't think she does, does she? Well, I think she has. A, I don't think she has a happy ending, but I think she has a satisfying character arc. We meet her at her birth, and then spoilers: we leave her at her death, and we encounter her entire life in between. So, I, I would actually argue quite strongly that this is a complete story. I, I might have been more sympathetic to your point with Harrow, um, but this one feels much more self-contained than I think Harrow did. Um, and I suspect Electo will again feel much less self-contained, um, but this one didn't. And that's actually why I don't like it, because I I think that's the, my main problem with it, is that it feels like a self-contained story being told in between like bits of a story I would quite like to carry on with. Like This does not appear to advance the series in any meaningful way to me. So I actually, I actually almost diametrically disagree with, with you on that. I will, want to come back to the um, uh, point I think Liz made, which is this is a book that would greatly benefit from a proper dramatis personae, and the guest list was the most annoying thing about the novel because it's very cute, but I would actually like to know what the fuck is going on and who all these people are. Like, and that was the other thing, which is I did because I have read Harrow a year ago, two years ago, a year ago, I can't remember now. But a while ago, I do not remember the finer details of Harrow in a way that would mean I could pick up anything from the series, the wider series. But I've got no idea who Thingamajig is. Hecht. I vaguely remember her coming up in a previous book, but like... Yeah, so that's, that is Camilla, one of the original cavaliers from Gideon the Ninth. She was in Gideon. Yeah, okay. And yes... I'd be, I'm on to look up now how long it was since I read the previous instalment. Yeah, so I did just read them. So maybe it just follows on much more for me because I've done that and it holds its own as a novel much better. But again, I think the pacing is really off for a novel. Oh, yeah, I agree. Like, I think, I think structurally it is a mess. Maybe that's unfair. But like, it, I'm, I'm, like, I'm not... A, I'm not a critic and I'm not a published author, so maybe this is incredibly unfair of me, but it feels much less well constructed than the previous two did to me. I mean, with the outside knowledge, I suspect this was like Act One of Electo the Ninth, and the point that we get to at the end, which, spoiler, I think is like Electo is released and Harrow's soul goes back into Nona, but I'm not 
entirely sure like i presume that's where we're supposed to get to part of the way through the fourth book to set up the ending and now we'll get that ending all plot all the time hopefully i am slightly worried that the end book's going to be more than two hundred thousand words so that it satisfies the requirements for best series next time please don't do that this book is too long i mean it it really is too long there were multiple times while reading it that i was like oh no this book is easy to put down and hard to pick up again and you know i had to go off and read one of the other novels and then come back to it because it's got to be two new works to be eligible and best series again by the way so one very long book won't do it oh thank you thank you oh oh um i've i guess i'm getting interested in best series now in a way that i maybe didn't before i started reading a lot more books so that's quite good uh, yeah, and apparently, so I just checked and I read Harrow in February 2021. So it's been like two and a half years. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I also think when we were saying on the best editor and we don't know what editors do, we kind of do know what editors do because the job of editors is to say, ah, yeah, no, this is great. But this section in the middle feels like there's some pacing issues. What can we do about that? And 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 I feel like... This is a very successful series, and the pro- the more successful people get, the less editors are inclined to mess with the thing that they think works. So I feel that somebody should have said, there's a great 120,000-word novel in there, let's find it, because I think that probably it. I think if I, had, if I had one criticism of the series as a whole, it would be that I do think each of the books are a bit longer than they really need to be. It's, I mean, embarrassingly long time to work out that Nona was, was um, Harrow and Gideon. I mean, like, 20 pages, but still. Shall we do the next one? The Spare Man by Mary Robinette Kowal. This is a story about a wealthy heiress whose spouse is accused of murder and who takes it upon herself to try and demonstrate that their spouse is not, in fact, a murderer. Also, the heiress is uh, chronically ill, uh, or has chronic pain, sorry, and uh, she has a very cute dog. Yeah, so so this is also a book in dialogue, this time with a movie called The Thin Man. Um, unlike The Wells, where, unlike, you probably should have read it a while ago, I recommend not watching The Thin Man before you read this novel, because um, <laughs> it didn't help at all. Because The Thin Man is a very funny movie, and this is a relentlessly unfunny novel. You know, this is the novel I found least funny of the six on the shortlist, by a mile. And considering that it's supposed to be a humorous novel, that's a problem. I mean, there aren't very many jokes and they don't land very well. And they are mostly, instead of coming out of wit and people doing witty things, they're kind of set up as I'm going to tell a joke now. And sometimes they go, oh, this person said something funny. Let's talk for a few paragraphs about how funny the thing they just said was. And I'm like, well, it wasn't particularly. It was just like ordinary, an ordinary conversational aside. This is not funny. This is the, the, oh, I, I just read it and thought, Mary Robinette Cowell, lovely, lovely person she is, must be terribly unfunny. I think you are labouring from a misapprehension, because I do not think this is supposed to be funny. Like, the cover does not mention that it's supposed to be funny. None of the tags on Goodreads mention being funny. The blurb does not mention being funny. I, I don't think this is intended to be a comedy. And so I am reluctant to ding it on the basis it isn't one. I think it's just supposed to be a mystery. A light-hearted mystery, but I don't think it's supposed to be a comedy mystery. I mean, I don't find any of the books on this shortlist funny anyway, but I think it's supposed to have like a light, frothy kind of, um, you know, newlyweds sparring tone that I don't think it really gets very well. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's supposed to be Bants. I think the Scalzi book definitely has Bants. This one does not particularly have that. Oh, I should know. I should know. I've, I did have um. <clears throat> it's time for Espanya's opinion. Da 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 da. Jingle. So Espanya found uh, No the Ninth incredibly frustrated, uh, frustrating, and really didn't like it. Uh, the Spare Man she thought was awful, <laughs> um, and the reason she thought it was awful, and I suspect Alison will agree with this take, is that she was like, I don't understand why this is science fiction. This could have just happened on a cruise ship, and I think that is my core. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed some of the like world building and I enjoyed some of the things that happened and I thought it was a nice quick read. But I agree with her that I don't think it's a particularly science fictional book. And like I, I don't think it does anything particularly noteworthy. And so like it will probably be towards the bottom of my ballot because even though I did enjoy the process of reading it, I, I'm not sure it like excited me in a sort of I'm going to put this on a Hugo ballot kind of a way. We should say I enjoyed it better than the Scalzi and the Baldry, but like I definitely think it's less interesting than the other three. Um, I think there's, the, and and you might disagree with me. You might both might disagree with me here, but I think on this shortlist there are three interesting books and three kind of potentially well done but not particularly interesting books. And I definitely feel like the the Kowal is one of the is one of the ones that does not particularly like excite me on an intellectual level. Oh, oh, it excited me on an intellectual level. And by that, I mean, it, it kind of had me wanting to stab things on an intellectual level. Shall we start with, if I'm given a choice between a future where we've dismantled the, gener- the gender binary, but capitalism is alive and well, or one where we've dismantled capitalism and the gender binary is alive and well, I'll take the second one. Thank you very much. This is a book where rich people do rich people things and not only get away with it, but use the fact that they're rich endlessly to push the plot forward and i just wanted to stab them through the eyes all the fucking time sorry and then they tell me they're funny which they do a lot i really did not like this novel and i didn't like it because it is all about how if you have privilege you can use it to get your own way a lot and that's kind of what the plot is yeah i mean i deeply disliked it i think for part of the same reason alison did which is if you're going to set up a plot where you know I think the idea of a mystery where, you know, a woman has to solve it because her husband has been wrongfully accused of murder and he's a detective, but he can't do any detecting is a great setup. But you can't then also make that woman like the solar system's richest woman. And she spends a lot of the beginning of the book basically going around doing a kind of don't you know who I am? Here's my extremely high powered lawyer on on video call. Um, By the way, I did think kind of a lot of the lawyer stuff was supposed to be funny about how the fact that she's continually on time delay as they get further and further out on the cruise liner in space but it never kind of got particularly funny it just ended up being a bit sort of like occasionally this lawyer person comes in so I think the problem there is that by starting off of this premise and then having someone kind of try and lampshade it by saying I know I shouldn't use my privilege for this but I'm going to, just ended up not working. And so then I wasn't rooting for her to solve the mystery. I was almost rooting for all the service people that she's kind of mean to along the way. And she does try and counter it at the end by, you know, being nicer to some of them. But when she's, you know, going, oh, well, the martinis made by this bartender are not very good. I'm like, I do not care that you are getting a substandard martini. And while we're talking about... um there is a service dog in this book and 
they relent they talk repeatedly about how you must not you know the service dog is a working dog so you shouldn't do things that detract from the fact the service dog is working and then whenever it suits her the service dog is sent off to do some non-service dog thing and i'm like oh god you know i really hate it when this happens in the real world you know i don't i i it's fine that you're getting to bring your dog into the cinema because it's a service dog. If you then get it to jump up and down on the seats and eat and eat other people's popcorn, that is still annoying, right? You know, if it's if it's a working dog, it has to be working, right? At, at least most of the time. And it's not. What I like is that we have contrived to have two Hugo novel episodes, one in which Alison rants about cats and the other in which Alison rants about dogs. This is very good. Oh, yeah. So I don't talk a lot about the fact that I don't believe in private pet ownership, but, you know. <laughs> I agree with that. There's an awful lot of I will use the dog as a convenient distraction here. And I think it maybe undermines what, you know, from my non-expert view, is a pretty good portrayal of PTSD and chronic pain. And some of the more interesting stuff was about how she can essentially dial it up or down but there'll be consequences later although i was waiting for the consequences to really kick in at a key point and they didn't so much you know but that is a great concept among the more science fictional things about it yeah and i think one of the um things i like about this is the portrayal of 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 chronic pain and and mental health i thought was very good uh and something you don't see um as often as it would be nice to see in in sf see i agree with that um for sure I have liked everything else I've read by Cole, so I think this is just um, an aberration, really. If it's a series, I probably won't read the next one, unless it's on the Hugo Ballad. I don't think it is a series. I think it's standalone. If this wasn't the Hugo Ballad, I would not have picked it up, because I've previously put down and closed one of Cole's novels after 100 pages. I know they're not for me, but it's on the Hugo Ballad, so I'm reading it. I do want to say one more thing, which is I also didn't find it very satisfying as a mystery. Like, I didn't find... It never had that kind of, oh, so that's what was going on kind of, oh, yes, moment. It kind of, like, occasionally things trickled out but didn't seem to have the right weight. Okay, so I'll trip back to The Thin Man. One of the things about The Thin Man that I think probably this book is doing is that the mystery is not the point of that film and not the point, I believe, the sequels, that that the, the, the mystery is something on which the comedy between the main characters, the, the detective couple, is is placed. That they're, they just kind of are funny all of the time. Every scene they're in is funny and they do a lot of funny physical comedy and funny verbal comedy. And I think that is what she was trying to catch here. So I think that's why I don't I, I do think it was intended to be a funny novel that is also a mystery. Um I I so I was quite surprised by the suggestion that's not the case. I like maybe maybe I'm wrong about this. Or maybe or maybe it's possible that Cowell didn't notice that the thin man is funny. Okay, I have a very interesting article about Cole about what she's taking from the thin man. I think one of the things that strikes me as a binary or not a binary a um parallel between your description of the thin man on a previous episode and this book is that they are both depictions of married people who are married where they are just married like and they have affection for one another and i like that and that's not something again you don't i think obviously not everyone jives with coel's depictions of these things but i do like that one of the things in the calculating stars as well was like a happily married couple who are happily married and that i do enjoy in her work so I can see why The Thin Man might have resonated for her on that level. I wanted more 
fleshing out of the husband in that case he is a bit of a cipher yeah i i one of the takes i read on this novel was that it's the same husband she always has in all of her books um which i thought was interesting um i don't know i, I haven't read enough coal to really know whether that's fair have you read the oh there's one of the calculating stars novels towards the end which has like a husband who is a senator and he is quite different in a way, if I recall correctly. Um, but I can't remember which book it is. Been a while since I read them. Then it is Nettle and Bone by T. Kingfisher, which I picked on the episode, one of the episodes leading up to EasterCon. So uh, I precede it there. I'd forgotten you picked it. Sorry. <laughs> Do one of you two want to give a summary? It is a fairy tale book in, in that it lives in the world of fairy tales. It is deeply unsettling in the way that um, a lot of fairy tales are in their original forms, but often not in the forms in which they are now read to children. So it's got quite a lot of things pulled out of myth. And I think almost the first page, T. Kingfisher, who is the pen name of Ursula Vernon, quotes from an English folk tale where she is building a dog out of bones and she reflects on the folk song where um, somebody is making a harp out of a woman's bones and other part, body parts. And I, I, that's obviously the sort of thing I like. And I instantly kind of went, oh, no, it's that sort of here we are in the world of the world of fairy tales in which people are not necessarily nice and it proceeds along those lines and people are not necessarily nice and it has something very much in common with Legends and Lattes which is that as our heroine goes along um, trying to complete her task which is much much less um, savoury than opening a coffee shop she finds a lot of people who help her but they are deeply difficult and unsettling and strange people who are not necessarily always aligned with her own needs um, but they form a, a group working together in a much more satisfying way than in the coffee shop book yeah i think i'd agree with that i love this I, especially after reading the other five i was like oh god a good book oh that's so nice i really enjoyed it i mean i, I think i also liked the aspect where so our heroine heroine is kind of the third she's the third child of the king so she is a princess and her you know she's trying to basically um kill the prince who's married both of her oldest sisters because he needs to be removed but i liked how there's kind of like the queen is in there as well and you know there's the inevitability of well all i can do to keep the kingdom together is to do what i can and use my children sort of as pawns on the board and and i liked you know i don't think she completely forgives the mother for it but she kind of comes around to understand like the situation she was in and what she had to do because nothing is too light and fluffy it is just kind of the reality of the world she's drawn I like that. I liked all the different, the different witches. So I think there's sort of multiple figures who have magic or powers or witchcraft. We've got the the dust witch and the different fairy godmothers or possibly cursing godmothers. And I thought that was an interesting, like to have these different ladies of different personalities all doing magic in different ways. I, mean, I can't say my mind isn't like completely blown by it, but I did enjoy it it's a lovely kind of little whimsical dark fairy tale i, I like the chicken there's a demonic chicken i love the demonic chicken yeah demonic chicken is great when they 
turn this into a movie, the demonic chicken will be played by Alan Tudyk. <laughs> no, it's really good. I can't... I mean, I read it ages ago. <laughs> but I remember it being good. I will say it felt very much like a young adult novel to me, which I think is probably like a lot of Kingfisher's works have been um, young adult uh, novels. So that makes sense. I think it's really good. And I think it's the best of the novels on the ballot. But I don't think it's as good as like previous best novel winners have been. Oh, there's been some turkeys. There have also been some turkeys. That's true. Uh, And it's definitely better than Wonder Woman. I think you're right on the adult thing. And the one thing I might ding it for is the main character is, you know, in her 30s for most of the book. And yes, she's been very cloistered and sheltered, but she sometimes feels a bit like a young adult teenage protagonist. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. She is, she, she is played, she's reading very young for somebody who's supposed to be in their early 30s, even if they have been um, living in a nunnery for, for 15 years. Yeah, and it means the romance feels a bit weird. Yes, that's fair. Yeah, gotta love me a good, strong, silent paladin type, though, like those. And I think that, I guess that might be what I mean by it feeling very young adult, which is that I think young adult books, everyone reads like a kind of teenager. And in this, there's not, I liked all the characters and they did all feel different, but there was only like one character who didn't just feel like kind of a teenager to me but maybe that's unfair oh the mother doesn't the fairy godmother doesn't the dust wife doesn't the demonic chicken doesn't well, the demonic chicken could be quite teenage and the bone dog put it this way i was imagining the main character as being in her teens but i did not pick up on an awkward thing with the paladin because the paladin was also reading like a broody teenager to me and so like they both felt pretty compatible uh and i I know like textually they are not teenagers but like that was very much how i was imagining them and it has to do with the the voice i guess yeah it feels like you know a princess going off on a quest with the wit and the fairy godmother and then i think you kind of expect the princess is a teenager not a grown woman and so maybe that expectation also plays into it you could subvert it a little bit more yes i'm not sure she's learned enough from her 15 you know she's done quite a she's not got 15 years of experience in that nunnery right it's not showing in what she does i guess the problem is that i've got They've got a fuck-all experience of the real world as well, but they definitely manifest as grumpy 50-year-olds rather than teenagers. Yeah, but you don't, you don't have to be grumpy. Sue Mason is a, is a spinster, right? And, and Liz? I'm heading for it. I'm going to get some cats. But, like, neither Liz nor Sue come across as teenagers to me, if that makes sense. Like, I think there is a... Even if you are very sheltered, there is a definite teenagerness to the character in this book that I feel like you do not have as you age, even if you do spend most of your life in a very sheltered. But it's a very it's a very minor ding, and I think it's mostly to do with the again coming back to like I think a lot of Kingfisher's books are are in the young adult kind of wheelhouse. So like I'm not sure it's like something she's tried to do and failed, as much as it is just like something I noticed, as if that if that makes sense. I mean this is an adult novel, not a young adult novel, but it feels more like a young adult novel than a lot of a lot of adult fantasy might, yeah. It's it's not that long. It's quite it, it I would have thought it was accessible. I, I'd happily give this book to teenagers, which is always one of the things I think about. I mean I'd give books to teenagers that people wouldn't because I remember what I was reading when I was a teenager. Um 
So people are like, you couldn't give that to a teenager. And I was like, oh, that's fine. If they give this one in the Lodestar category, I would not blink an eye at it really of being suitable for a Lodestar as well. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's just because, you know, YA and adult crossover a bit more. But, you know, A Wizard's Guide to Defensive Baking was in the, you know, the Lodestar and had a teenage protagonist. And this does not feel dramatically different. I like them both, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's got a lot of hard words here about the um, way in which women are treated in fairy tale worlds and indeed often not in fairy tale worlds that, you know, you might not want your kids to know about until they grow up and experience it firsthand. But there we go. I was just going to say that Christian Cashore's books, which are also young adult in theory, have a lot of this about like women's place in the world and, you know, the control of women and ability and things like that. So it felt like I came from the same well. I also like those a lot. So I'd be interested to know if any um, experts in kind of children's or young adult fiction are listening, but I, I, I think I've read in general, I think I've read that um, young adult does tend to deal with more adult themes than adults think it does. Um, if that makes sense. I will also say I, I didn't like it as much as defensive baking. Defensive baking's great though. So, you know, that might be why, uh, but it is, but it is still very like because I'm like trying to think of interesting things to say about the thing, and it's way more interesting to pick up pick at like the very minor criticisms I have than oh, I really liked it. So like it is tricky. I found this very satisfying. I like this better than defensive baking. I like defensive baking well enough, but I thought it was a romp. Whereas I felt like this was really getting into the the very very satisfying meat of myth and magic and and how they work and what the trade-offs there are like and I like that sort of thing and also I quite I, I did like Bone Dog quite a lot I thought Bone Dog was quite a good dog and you know having I don't want you to think that I'm entirely against animals um yeah when they're kind of magic magic Bone Dogs that's pretty good and I love the fact they put fur on him later I thought that was probably a good move I did like the way it starts in media's res with her like animating a Bone Dog <laughs> Yes, I think also, so, so Legends of Lattes and Kaiju Preservation Society, which are both about as long as this book, very much tell a story in a very, here is the start of the story and here is the end of the story and here we are going through the story one beat at a time as, it, you know, as if anything more complicated than that would overwhelm us. So I do quite like that this was told in a, in a more imaginative way and nevertheless, in quite, it's quite a short Yeah, I think structurally this is more impressive than um several of the other books on the shortlist like in terms of how it is written i think you are right and i guess i loved it was a great place to start i was i was very into this book as soon as that dog was made and then it went yeah it's good (laughs) right so then it is time to do our rankings who wants to do their ranking first i'm still thinking it's a bit tricky because i've definitely got a top three and a bottom three is just the ordering within those might change but okay I th- shall i start because i think i've got a nailed on order yeah go on then all right so i'm making a spreadsheet i'm checking it twice gonna find out who's naughty and nice so i'm gonna put kaiju in sixth oh i see we're going in reverse order we're going in reverse order I think the reason I'm putting Legends of Lattes in five is that I have read several uh, John Scalzi adventure books, which didn't really tax me very much and had lots of quippy people in them. And although it's not a, I'm not unfond of that form, it doesn't really feel like I haven't seen it before. Whereas Legends of Lattes, you know, is slightly fresher. 
And then in four, I'm going for The Spare Man. I enjoyed it more than you two by what sounds like a country mile. Um, but I did, I did quite like it. In third, I am putting Nona the Ninth because I wanted it to be about 20% shorter and make roughly 100% more sense. Then I'm putting The Daughter of Dr. Moreau because although I didn't necessarily think it cohered as well as it might have done, I thought it tried to do some interesting things and I did enjoy it in general. And then at the top, Nettland Bone, the only one that was previously picked on an episode of Octothorpe and it was picked by me because I have great taste. Boom! My picks. All right, Alison. Right, so in sixth place, in sixth place, The Spare Man. Um, I really did hate this book. In fifth place, Legends of Lattes, because as far as I'm concerned, it's not really a science fiction novel. It's a, it's a, well, what would you say? Alternative universe coffee shop. Oh, no, nothing happens. It's fine. Nothing happens in this book and it's fluffy. Um, in fourth, Nona the Ninth, it has been bumped down the list because it is not, in my view, a novel. Um, and also it doesn't make any sense. And also um, it's far too long for what it is. In third place, Kaiju Preservation Society, because luckily I have not read a John Scalzi novel for about... 12 years so i'd forgotten that they're all alike so as long as i only read one about once every 12 years it'll be fine i felt that this was a perfectly serviceable science fiction adventure story in which stuff happens and it it is also a pandemic book that actually uses that fact quite well and uses it to help propel the pot and it is fine um it's not great um you'll see we're into not great books here in second place the daughter of dr moreau because it is trying to be really interesting and the fact that it doesn't pull it off really isn't shouldn't be as that much of a um downside and i would like to see i'm definitely going to read a load more of moreno garcia's books which is not true for anybody else on this list except probably i will read electo and um and then in first place nettle and bone which is a genuinely good book that i enjoyed all the way through and have only minor reservations about but what i really like in science fiction is like really interesting science fiction plots that challenge me and do a lot of interesting world building and i don't feel any of these six books do this i'm not going to put no award ahead of all of them but you know honestly guys could do better all right and then liz so i mean there's not a lot of suspense here but i will say that i'm putting the spare man in sixth because i don't think it did successfully any of the things it was trying to do and i would have stopped reading it if it weren't on the shortlist and in fifth, I'm putting Legends and Lattes, which does at least do most of what it attempts to do, even if what it does is basically, you know, some orcs invent the cinnamon bun and the ceiling fan. Well done. Um, in fourth, we are going for the Kaiju Preservation Society, because it's fun enough. I mean, I liked it more than I was expecting to, actually, because, I, again, I would not normally read John Scalzi's books unless they're on the shortlist because I find their hit rate is not great for me. But I finished it. It was entertaining. Did you know tech billionaires are maybe not great, guys? I did learn that from this book. In third, I will put Nona the Ninth because like i liked it but i don't know what's going on in second it's the daughter of dr moreau by sylvia moreno garcia which i do think is genuinely really interesting and i have read other of moreno garcia's books i just don't think this is one that particularly appeals to me and in first place i'm going to put netland bone by t kingfisher it's pretty good so liz has also described the consensus list <laughs> Liz, you are the average this year. 
I did not realise how much Alison liked John Scalzi. That is wild to me. Third, crazy. That is that is by far like the kaiju is the one that splits us the most. I I, I apparently thought it was much worse than both of you. Third, third. Good lord, I should have been meaner about that book in the kaiju <laughs> section. Third, but it's yeah, it's it's only because it's only because I I really don't like voting for for books that are installments of series. Third, John, I, I didn't say where I was putting no award. Oh, where are you putting no award? Yes, no. So, are you putting no award above or below any of these books, Liz? Maybe I'm I'm thinking about it. But if my personal view is you should. You should put something below no award if you would genuinely prefer that nothing got the prize rather than this book. (laughs) I really didn't like the spare. I think, I think, I only know award things for philosophical reasons, by which I mean either either stuff like the puppies where i'm like no philosophically i disagree with these people or the philosophical reason of something not being a novel so like if you know you mentioned the clark's world short story where it's basically a non-fiction piece with lots of footnotes it that is the sort of thing i might put below no award if i'm like well this isn't the short story so what are you doing but i i, I very rarely i, I probably won't just because i feel i wouldn't be appalled if the spare man won but I'd be quite surprised. I feel like writing books is hard. It's true, I couldn't do a better job, so... Writing books in pandemics is hard. We should we should be nice to our authors. We're glad they write books for us. I am, yes. I'm trying to think the last thing I put below no award. Um, um... I think I'm much more liberal with the no awarding than you are, but I, I probably won't put it below anything. I just, I reserve it for the cases of where I really feel very strongly opposed but actually if the spare man wins the spare man wins I'm not gonna actually be upset do we have a few minutes for what we would have liked to have seen on this ballot oh god how long do you how long do we have like i could have an entire separate but separate shortlist probably do the octothorpe 2022 awards shortlist i don't have anything to contribute the only one I read was Let Alone Bone, and it was eligible, and that's on it. So I just nailed my reading. Oh, no, you, I'm pretty sure you read at least one other thing that you have had as a pick, which is eligible, Tom. Oh, which one's that? City of Last Chances. Oh, yeah, no, that's true. It should just be all Adrian Tchaikovsky. Sorry, what am I talking about? <laughs> right. The fact that there aren't four Adrian Tchaikovsky novels on this ballot is a bloody outrage. City of Lost Chances is better than... All of the books on this ballot, except possibly Nettle and Bone. Um, no, it's better than all of them by an absolute country mile. Um, I really didn't like the ending of City of Lost Chances. I thought it fell apart. But apart from that, I really, really enjoyed it all the way through. Um, so possibly I just didn't understand the ending. It's always a possibility. We haven't discussed it in detail. Um, um, sea of Tranquility is much better than any of the books on this ballot and satisfies my proper science fiction requirement and also won the Goodreads Award. Don't understand why it's not on the ballot. Those would be my two obvious ones. But actually, Plutoshine, Plutoshine is better than several of the books on this ballot. So, oh, my God. OK, that, that <laughs> we're definitely going to get letters right in, people. Um no, so actually, so yeah, so I did read a bunch of the Clark uh, finalists, so that's interesting. I don't... So yeah, so City of Lost... So I think I'd keep... The, our top three uh, is Natalie Bone, Daughter of Dr. Moreau, and Nona the Ninth. I think probably the three I'm replacing are not those three. 
So what? So I guess if I could put three on here that replaced the Kaiju, Legends of Lattes, and the Spare Man, City of Last Chances, um, and then probably... The, I really liked The Anomaly. I know that, like, that was a bit of a divisive book, but I would like to see that on there. Um, and then probably the Simon Jimenez, because I haven't read it yet, but, like, I'm sure it's great. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I will say... There is an open question here because there are a couple of books which I was very surprised not to see on the ballot in a sort of did they decline way rather than a how has that not made the shortlist way because I would be astounded if Babel wasn't in the top six nominated books and I suspect that might mean that we find out that it was it got a that Quang declined the nomination. A lot of people have said this. I will be I will be interested to see what the ballot would have looked like without declined nominations and what would have fallen off and how like our bottom three tallies with that because I suspect I would dislike Babel because I didn't like Quang's uh is it the Poppy War that was the first installment of a best series I really didn't like that book so unless Babel's very different I suspect I wouldn't like it either um but I was surprised it wasn't on there and then, like, you know, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Sea of Tranquility are both, like, names that you might have expected to see on there as well. Oh, yes, I haven't read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, right? Like, even though when Liz recommended it, it totally immediately fell out of my brain. And then Lillian said, Alison, you must read this book in a very book talk way. You know, this book will change your life. And, and so then I decided to read it. So, But the reason I haven't read it is that I put my name down on the Libby list on my library and I am number 493 in a queue waiting for one of three copies. So it might be a while. This is not quite a fair comparison because I didn't put a hold on Nettle and Bone. But when I put holds on all of these books from the library, Legends of Lattes was by far the most held book. It was the one I had to wait the longest for. Um, so that was interesting. I always like I was like working out how popular they are with like the library users uh by comparing the number of holds anything we haven't mentioned that you think should be on this list oh yeah i mean i mean definitely i didn't even i'm not even as big a fan of babel as a lot of people but i definitely think it it should be on this short list above some of the others (laughs) well should be on there probably venomous lump sucker from the clout list i also like the coral bones more i know john's making a thumbs down at me put both of those on there I would put The Mountain in the Sea by Ray Naylor, which I picked a few weeks ago. I might put Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow on, although it's not like... If if I'm thinking what I want is books that I think are really good and really interesting from a sort of science fictional perspective, then it's not super interesting from the SF perspective. But I think it's reasonably good. Um I might put on The Grief of Stones by Catherine Addison, which manages to be a more satisfying mystery than The Spare Man, I think. I've only read one of the Adrian Tchaikovsky's this year, and it's very middle book, but it's a good middle book. It's just, if I was thinking of what, what, what science fiction from 2022 would I give someone as an example of good science fiction, yeah, there's a lot that I would take off this Hugo list and a lot of things I would put on instead. I think if I was using that metric as opposed to how good the books are, I think the only one I would keep on here is the Moreno Garcia. And maybe that makes me an absolute mad lad. But like, Nettle Bone's very well done, but it doesn't it doesn't feel interesting in the way that, that Dr. Moreau does uh, in what it's trying to do, maybe. But I, will, I wanted to ask you, the middle Tchaikovsky, was it as middle as No Other Night? Because I feel like... <laughs> no. 
<laughs> in that I think it does, like, I mean, I know what's going on. Boo! And I think it reintroduces you to the characters you need to be reintroduced to much better. So it's not it's not quite as middle book. But I think also the thing about Noah the Ninth is it's very different from the first two books. And she's obviously going for a different thing with every book in this series. Whereas Eyes of the Void feels more like a space opera book from a space opera trilogy that is building to a great big space opera finale. And I thoroughly enjoy them all. But I'm not sure I would pick that one. It's the one to give someone. All right. Anything else? Any other mentions? Or it's a good year for science fiction, but a terrible year for the Hugos? Oh, I think it's a terrible year for both, because, like, I found the Clark list also extremely underwhelming. I think the Anomaly and Venomous Lump Sucker are the two best ones I've read on that shortlist so far. I haven't read The Coral Bones yet, but, like, I didn't think any of them were great. So, like... It feels like slim pickings, and I think I wonder whether that's to do with this is the year where books that should have been written in 2020 and 2021 should have been being published, and I wonder whether we are seeing that effect in the science fiction of 2022, and I wonder if it will return to some sort of form in the next couple of years. That is my suspicion. And that was the Ultra Thought Podcast, and it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. The theme music for this episode was Surf Shimmy by Kevin MacLeod and Combatech.com used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.